You are listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular media. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and today we'll be investigating the Book of Boba Fett. I am Boba Fett. Left for dead on the sands of Tatooine. Jabba ruled with fear. I intend to rule with respect. The Book of Boba Fett. This is the second in a series of many, many planned Star Wars series on Disney+. The Book of Boba Fett production itself feels a little bit rushed, a little bit underwritten, and heavily leans on a series of almost endless nostalgic references to past Star Wars stories. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot to talk about. There definitely is. So even if you're not a fan of Star Wars, you can get something out of this discussion. Especially because Book of Boba Fett pulls a lot of its themes and motifs directly from old Hollywood westerns, and ends up reproducing dozens of tropes from that genre. So here to discuss the Book of Boba Fett, we are joined by friend of the show, Carl Williams. Carl is an assistant professor of clinical law at Cornell Law School. He teaches and supervises students working on legal projects and cases supporting struggles for racial justice, sovereignty, and liberation. Welcome back to the podcast, Carl. Hey, thanks a lot, John. So I thought we might start by talking about the history of Boba Fett. You know, Boba Fett first appeared in 1978 as part of the Christmas holiday special. You are alone. I have two droids. We've come in search of a ship that crashed near here. Maybe I can help you. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Are the Imperial troops near this planet? They are here, friend. So Boba Fett started as a concept in the late 70s for a new type of stormtrooper. Uh, George Lucas had just released A New Hope, and it was a massive success. And so they were in production for Empire Strikes Back, and they decided they wanted to do a new, have a new kind of sort of super trooper, stormtrooper. And they designed this outfit. It was all in white. And uh, for a variety of budgeting reasons, they realized they couldn't produce the 100 versions of that that they had hoped to do. And so they decided, well, we're just going to take this one outfit, repaint it, repurpose it, and make it a kind of a background character, a minor character in the Empire Strikes Back. You may take Captain Solo to Jabba the Hutt after I have Skywalker. He's no good to me dead. He will not be permanently damaged. The interesting thing about Boba Fett is that he was not a big part of those movies. I mean, he was in Empire Strikes Back, and he was in the very beginning of Return of the Jedi. He had a total of four lines of dialogue, where he doesn't really say much. I mean, I think it's like less than 30 words. He's on screen for maybe all of six minutes total in two movies, mostly standing sort of in the background. And it was, you know, it was very much meant to be a sort of a, a, a Western gunslinger in space, very much built on Clint Eastwood characters from old Westerns. But he has become this pop culture phenomenon that far outweighs his actual role in those films. And like happens with a lot of very popular media, and especially with Star Wars, there's this popular notion about what Boba Fett is and what he represents that isn't reflected in the original movies, right? So in the movies, Boba Fett is not a badass. He looks cool, kind of menacing, but he doesn't capture Han or Leia. Darth Vader and the Empire do that, and Boba Fett just kind of like points him in the right direction and stands behind him. And so he doesn't really do anything badass. I mean, in Return of the Jedi, he dies in like the most unceremonious, comedic way almost possible. You know, Han is blinded, and he spins around real quick, and he accidentally like hits Boba Fett's jetpack, and he flies into the Sarlacc pit. I mean, it's it's comedic, but somehow... People have created this notion of Boba Fett as this, as this sort of gunslinging, badass character that, that doesn't have much basis, in, at least in the, in the original movies. I think there's a um, – I was just thinking of like a name to call it. It's sort of the, the WTF. That's how it ended, right? So I think people had this about Game of Thrones. People had this about going a little bit further back, the, the newer Battlestar Galactica. They're like, what? That's how it ended? <laughs> and when – Boba Fett is this menacing person behind the scenes. He's just sort of like, I'm here. I'm the muscle and something might happen with me and you don't really know. 
that is, you can read whatever you want into that, right? So, right. you know, as yeah. kids, as people who saw, you know, you know, Empire Strikes Back, you're like, whoa, that dude, that dude, what's up with that dude? But I mean, I, I sort of do appreciate the, the idea. It's like, okay, well, let tell us, tell us what's up with that dude. Any TV show that's going to explore a character is going to necessarily have some character development. It's going to necessarily have to uh, delve deeper into what that character is about. And, and that's going to dismiss some of the mystery around it. Inevitably, it's probably going to be disappointing, right? Because we have 40 years of people making up their own stories about what is going on with that dude. It's going to be disappointing to some people. Especially, especially all the people who wrote fan fiction. They're like, damn, I really, yeah. I wanted my version of Boba to be real. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what happened. You know, I saw the first few episodes and then I went and looked online and saw there was this huge backlash to the first three or four episodes from, you know, hardcore Star Wars fans who were mad. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, you know, are they mad about some piece of nostalgia or trivia about Boba Fett that the show got wrong or something? But no, they're mad because he was too soft, that he was too weak, Right. That he didn't match up. He was with, weaker than he was weaker than tripping into the Sarlacc pit. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Right. He he fell. He fell to his death accidentally. It's like he. It's like if you're the greatest warrior of of an age. If it's like King Arthur died because he you know tripped on his his yeah fell right onto Excalibur, <laughs> cut his own head yeah, off. Right, but, right. 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 He picked it up by the wrong end. Yeah. I mean, his death is comedic. He he wasn't a badass, and yet because this character in the show didn't match up with this idea of this ultra badass, like almost sociopathic character that people, that fans had built up for decades. Uh, there was this initial backlash to his being weak. I know I'm gonna miss you too, Oakville. Now go, find other Benthus, make baby Benthus. You're free to roam the Dune Sea. I saw, you know, there was some articles even written about it. There was an article in The Guardian I saw and the things that were cited were like, well, he's nice to animals. You know, he shows mercy to kids, right? Because there's that scene where he's going to like beat the kid to death with a stick okay. and then he, and he doesn't. But I mean, the series also starts off with him being in chains, right? He's captured by the Tuscans, which we'll get into later. You know, for this one group of fans, that was unacceptable. You know, he's not dominating everybody he comes in contact with. Can I just you say know? here, rule number one Everybody gets hit in the head by the Tuscans. <laughs> That's the rule of Star Wars. If you're in the desert on Tatooine, someone is going to hit you in the head. It is going to be a Tuscan. Right. And you're not going to see it coming. Yeah. So we are, you know, we see Boba Fett without his armor brought down to the role of a prisoner. On one level, that was what people are upset about. But on another level, what we do see in those first few episodes is a character who is reevaluating his life choices, right? He's like, maybe being a bounty hunter wasn't the best idea. You know, he has no connections with the world around him. He's a loner, but it's that the transition from this sort of badass loner image to a character who is building relationships and connections as part of a group of people uh, that I think was also something that the, these, this group of fans didn't like. In great literature and children's literature in general, when you're in the stomach of an animal and then you're expelled from the stomach of an animal, you think differently after that. <laughs> right. Partially being digested has that effect on people. Yeah. So there was, I mean, I think there was a opportunity here. I appreciate the idea of like, we're going to take this character, take them from loner to somebody who values their relationships. I don't think they pulled it off. Now- we have a situation, though, where the fandom was expecting a certain archetype, right? They were expecting the Clint Eastwood cowboy who rides into town, has a bunch of shootouts and standoffs, and uses brute force to gain power and respect, and then rides off into the sunset, right? That's what they're expecting, I think. And because this show, Book of Boba Fett, sets itself up as a Western uh, and uses and sort of pulls on all these Western motifs. I mean, we have... The harsh and unforgiving environment, which is Tatooine. We have the sort of lawless and violent world building. We have the dusty towns. We have the shootouts. We have the train robberies, right? 
Now we have the outlaws. The indigenous people that <laughs> are barely people. Right. The fans were expecting Clint Eastwood from a spaghetti western. And what they got was Kevin Costner from Dances with Wolves. Right. It's the upgrade, right? It's the upgrade of the western. Really, it just for me, and maybe it's my sort of age group, in the 90s, this was, it was all of the Dances with Wolves, Last Samurai. Uh, um, last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans, right? Last of the every, last of the dot, dot, dot. You know, you could make, in the 90s, you could make any movie if there was, you know, some white guy who was sort of warrior guy and he was the last of the whatever. Who are you? I am Boba Fett. Boba is dead. I was left for dead on the sands of Tatooine. I was rescued by the sand people. They took me and treated me as one of their own. Right. So you have Boba Fett, you know, who's coming in and he is, he's going native. We should just say that that's in quotes, right? Right. He's going native. Italics. Italics. Can't see the air quotes here. In popular fiction, especially in Westerns, but also in some science fiction, you have this trope of a character who joins a native people, switches sides, and becomes part of a tribe or a group of aliens or whatever. And that's, that's what happens here. This is a galaxy far, far away. The native people are Tuscans. I mean, it's an allegory, or at the very least, Tuscans are coded as native people. And you kind of get all of the Hollywood Western tropes uh, thrown in there, but then sort of like made a little bit science fiction. So you have the vision quest aided by the the lizard that goes into his nose. You've got the, the war dance with the drums, right? Uh, all of these motifs that could be pulled. I, you have you have um, people who live in, in sort of tents or yurts. Yep. You have sc- scarcity of resources. You have traditional hunting methods. There is no argument that that's, this isn't you know what the construct is, and an intentional right. It's an it's intentionally written. They were like, let's indigenous it up. You know the the Tuscan Raiders have been traditionally in Star Wars have been portrayed as they're this group of savage bandits going back to A New Hope. And so on one level, you know, seeing this group of people, for lack of a better word, they're more humanized here. We are meant to have sympathy for them. We are meant to sort of as the audience understand their culture, which I, which I do appreciate. However, <laughs> there's a downside to how it's been done here. You had said, John, that we have, we have sympathy for them. And we, we don't have that for Boba Fett. We don't have that for the Mandalorian. We don't have that for Baby Yoda because those are the main characters. Those are the, those are the people who we want to be like. We're like, oh, I would have done that or I wouldn't have done that. We're meant to identify with them. We have empathy for them. We feel their pain. Like, oh, I got shot. Oh, no. The Tuscans were like, eh, it's too bad all of them died and had to be burned on a pyre, right? <laughs> like, you don't, you're sort of like, oh, it's like you're watching them as you're passing by in a train. You're like, look at that. That's not a nice thing to happen. That's the difference between sympathy and empathy. You're sort of like, well, it's strange in a Star Wars uh, environment to say this. They're not human. Like, they're not considered, you don't watch it and say us. These are the us. You know, and I think that that actually does parallel with the ways that Native people have traditionally been presented in old Westerns. There is a fantastic book called West of Everything by Jane Tompkins. And if you're interested in Westerns or in Hollywood masculinity, it is essential reading, in my opinion. And one of the things she talks about in that book is that the Native people in traditional Westerns, essentially they are props. They're sort of like a, a dangerous form of wildlife, right? Uh, but they're not individuals. They have no personalities that are distinct. They function more as like an extension of the environment that as individuals we are meant to identify with. In that way, Book of Boba Fett feels like it. Uh, there are parallels to the old Hollywood Westerns. And in this case, some of the, the worst elements of those old Westerns. I mean, the Tuscans are presented as animalistic. And they speak in grunts and oinks, and it's it's not translated. You know, there's no subtitles except I think in one part. The rest of it, we don't know what they're saying. Or even, or even if they are saying something, right? I was like, are they supposed to be talking to each other, or are they just like arg and point to a stick, right? 
and you get the sense that Boba Fett also doesn't understand what they're saying and they don't understand him. And yet he can become a member of the tribe. Uh, he, he gets the outfit. He gets this, this sort of ceremonial weapon. He learns the dance. He learns the fighting techniques, right? He, he becomes a Tuscan. But it's, it's amazing what you can learn, you know, if you're the, the sort of uh, new, new member of the tribe and you have a, a, you know, a quick montage, you'd be like, yeah, you can learn how to fight like a warrior better than any of our members of our tribe. And you can make our weapons and... Yeah. And, and he doesn't just become a member. He ends up leading the group. I will teach you how to ride. I will teach you. This is how we will stop the train. Right. He's this outsider who comes in and becomes their leader. I mean, he teaches them how to defend themselves. He teaches them how to use military tactics. He teaches them how to ride speeder bikes, he teaches them how to communicate with or how to negotiate with their enemies. Right? I mean, there's that scene where he is, they've, they've robbed the train or they've knocked the train off the tracks. And then he's negotiating with the Pike Syndicate. And he's doing all the talking and he's making all the decisions and he, he's in charge, right? And he's, the, he's a leader. And so it isn't just that he joined this group. He has to teach them how to survive. Which is stunning because obviously if we went to the Tuscan wiki page or the Tuscan on Wikipedia, we went to it on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. if, if, if we did that, I mean, we would look at, I mean, Tuscans are like these desert survival people. How are you going to tell them? <laughs> Right? How would you tell those, you know, living right. beings how how to survive it? That they like it's in their initial, maybe problematic name. They're Tuscan Raiders. I mean, they were defined to be kind of like the train robbers, right? Of old, like problems with all of that. But then they're like, well, we're gonna go rob a train. Oh, didn't you know how to do that? Wouldn't you? If you right. were surviving yeah. in the desert this way, wouldn't wouldn't this be like kind of plan A? Really, this gets to the root of why this representation in particular is a problem. Because the idea that this indigenous group, you know, fictional, but they're an indigenous group who has lived on the sands of Tatooine since the oceans died and have been surviving there. This is their land. This is their environment. This is, right, this is something that they've been doing for generation upon generation. And yet, they still need the outsider to come in. And teach him how to how to really survive. And also his job. Look, what was Boba Fett's job before he got he got eight? What was his job before that? He was a kidnapper, right? He kidnapped people, right? So he would be. I mean, his job is not that. Their job is that, and he teaches them how to do the thing that is their job. Right, and and so you can see how in other media, media that's set on Earth and is set in this sort of fictional, very fictionalized version of the of the Wild West which wasn't actually so wild in reality, but that's a different conversation. You can see how the, the Dances with Wolves thing, where you have the white cavalry officer joining the native tribe, that there's a lot of very troubling, often very racist uh, notions sort of embedded in that story. Um, and the same is true for La uh, Last of the Mohicans and for Last Samurai and so on and so forth. Now, this one, you know, in Book of Boba Fett, uh, things are a little bit different. One, it's on a different planet. But the allegory is pretty clear. It's hard to deny that allegory and that coding. The difference being that the actor who plays Boba Fett, Temora Morrison, and so you have a, an actor who is of indigenous heritage, uh, and he's of Maori descent, playing this character, which you know does make it a little bit different in this case, uh, but in the context of Star Wars, doesn't really address the outsider coming in to lead the native people problem. Right. I mean, it's sort of, I'm going to make up a word here. It's a little Hamilton-esque, right? You're <laughs> like, okay, so there are people who dallied, I'll say dallied with, you know, enslaving people as Hamilton and his family did. And then we're going to make them all black in the movie. And you're like, okay, that's weird. It's confusing. Is that better or is it worse? I have a lot of thoughts on that. We won't go into those now. Um, <laughs> but- does it make it okay? I would say no. Is it his fault? I would say no. Is it still this settler colonial idea that is put forward? Because if you watch it, if you're a kid and you watch that, you go, oh, you go in and save the people that are dirty, 
and you're better than them and you just need to teach them how to live because the way they live is wrong and the way you live is right. That's a, a you know a thumbnail of settler colonialism. And that's what this shows. This shows like, you know, you can be the great white hope, eh, even if you're not that white. But the ideology is there. That the idea right. that this outsider comes in and can show these people how to do something and that the thing that they've been doing all along is probably not the best way. And then by the way, they're all gonna get killed anyway. It's this led by the outsider going native trope. But then it turns out that he doesn't save the native Tuscans uh, because they're all killed. All of them. You know, we, as we've already talked about, they don't have names. They don't really have distinct personalities. They're also interchangeable and disposable, right? Because they're just killed off. I think we're supposed to feel sad about that. But since they don't have faces... Or names. You write like three die and you're like, is that one that I know? Is that the leader one? Right. Or is that <laughs> right. the one, the little one? Right. I mean, it really does expose just how thinly written these characters are. So everybody that we knew are all dead. And this then motivates, you know, Boba Fett to on the rest of his quest. But this idea of like, in, in order to push your protagonist story forward, you're going to kill off like everybody that they care about or have any connection to is a, a mark of very bad writing. I thought about this previously. It, it, it's the, the the legend of Kung Fu, right? The series in the in the 70s. He would go to a town and something would happen. And then he would like fight off the, protect the town, fight off the people, solve the thing for the week. And then he, for whatever reason, and this would always, the you know, the eight-year-old me had to be like, why can't he stay in that town? They like him. The lady <laughs> made him nice breakfast and she was nice lady. But for something, because like the people who were chasing, he, he'd have to go to somewhere else because right. of the right. circumstances of the story. So he'd always have to go to a new town. So there was never any connection. He was always the loner, like wandering in the desert with Kung Fu. Um, and, and similarly here, to be, in quotes and in italics, a man, right? To be a strong man, he has to have no connection. So what you have to do is kill all the people, especially if anyone was sympathetic, learning, or helpful to him, or nurturing. They can't exist anymore. They got to die. <laughs> so many science fiction shows use this uh, as a way to quickly generate sympathy. Um, it's sort of a cheap writing tactic, right? So it happens in Star Trek Discovery. It happens in Star Trek Picard. It happens in The Mandalorian. You get right? a Death Star to blow up a planet. Yeah. And it's very, it's, it's, it's a simple, easy shortcut to character development. But that severing of all connections I mean, it's part of the Western genre. I mean, you know, this classic thing where, where the cowboy returns home and his his homestead is burned and his wife is dead and his kid is, you know, missing or kidnapped or something. And then that sets up the revenge quest for the cowboy to go and, and use this sort of very brutal violence, which he's now justified to use against the people who did it and their friends and the people who looked the other way and, like, and everybody. There's, there's like, I don't even know, someone count. The, the number of movies that Liam Neeson is in, who's a good actor. <laughs> I think it's his age, his face, his demeanor. He's quite good in them, but you're like, how many movies are there where something horrifying has happened to his family and they're all dead and random people have done it and he has to go and do outrageously horrible things to them with a scowl on his face the whole time. I mean, there are so many movies like that. There are so many of those like sort of- In fact, there's one that came out just this week. Of course, because they, they're weekly. <laughs> There's this idea that like, you know, that's why we exist as men is like to right. kill everyone who says the slightest thing to our family. Well, it's part of the the sort of hyper-masculine protector notion. Um, and it's I think it's a, it's a fantasy. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we have such a gun obsession in the United States. I think it's very much connected to that sort of like castle doctrine, protect my family, you know, take you out kind of thing. I mean, it's like, that's part of the, the sort of fantasy of being a man. There's a quote here from West of Everything, and it reminded me a lot of what was happening here in Boba Fett. So she says, the hero, provoked by insults, first verbal, then physical, resists the urge to retaliate, proving his moral superiority to those who are taunting him. It is never the hero who taunts his adversaries. If he does, it is only once he has been pushed too far. And this, of course, is what always happens. The villains, whoever they may be, finally commit an act so atrocious 
that the hero must retaliate in kind. He wants to, and we want him to, and if there is a crowd of innocent bystanders, they want him to as well. At this juncture, the point where provocation has gone too far, retaliatory violence becomes not simply justifiable, but imperative. Now we are made to feel not to transgress would be itself a transgression. So the entire purpose of that pattern is for the audience to get on board, to get to the point where they can't wait for the hero to pull out his six-shooter. I mean, you do, you get this. I get this when, when, when I watch The Book of Ophed. I'm like, that guy needs to get murked. <laughs> I mean, they go in and blow up the bar. Right. And you're like, come on, you got to smoke everybody now. Right, and, and that feeling is very carefully crafted because you know when you have the, the Western hero, sort of the Clint Eastwood archetype, he's a man from nowhere and he inhabits a world where you know, physical strength or the ability to do violence well is the ideal. And coupled with that often in these old Westerns is like the ability to endure pain and hardship, which we definitely see in this. I mean, he goes into the Sarlacc pit, he crawls out the first time, then he goes back in covered in acid and everything. He's tied to a post for like, I don't know, like a month or so. It's unclear how long he's tied to this post without food or drink. Right. Which is, again, ironic that some fans thought that this was an expression of weakness when, when really, you know, it's straight out of the old you know, old spaghetti Western style masculinity. That archetype is also defined by like rigid self-discipline, some sort of extraordinary skill, uh, usually having to do with violence. Uh, And then like this dogged, unbreakable determination to get what they want, whether that's revenge or their position or whatever it is. Now that's coupled with the very limited emotional expression. You know, Boba Fett doesn't really show any outward emotions. Action makes the man in this scenario. Uh, and, and words are limited. And we, we see that. I mean, there's very little dialogue. Most of it is just sort of explaining the plot. Uh, even when characters who know each other and are building relationships, supposedly, are talking to each other, they're mostly like talking about tactics. You know, there's very little emotional connection. So this sort of loner, tough as nails character is out for revenge. And once he's got revenge, supposedly, for the Tuscans, the show pivots to, well, actually, no, you really do need a tribe, even though we've just killed off your whole tribe uh, for easy emotional payoff. Oops. And then he meets a whole bunch of people who he brings into his group. um, And he has this whole line where he's like, uh, you can only get so far without a tribe. Living with the Tuscans has made you soft. No. It's made me strong. You can only get so far without a tribe. And he's talking to Fennec. You know, we're meant to believe that he has this connection with her, but that doesn't really show up in the dialogue. It doesn't really show up in any real sense in the way that, you know, their interactions on screen, right? It's, it's, it's very, it still feels very sort of isolated, very distant. Uh, so we're going to build this new tribe of misfits. And I think, you know, that could be, again, done in an interesting way. But we know all, next to nothing about any of the people in his tribe, except for Mandalorian, the Mandalorian, uh, because we know him from a different show. He's got the mods, right? Who come Scooter in. Gang, yeah. Yeah, the mods, Scooter Gang. Very George Lucas, American Graffiti, in my opinion, fit right into Star Wars. In, in that sort of almost cringeworthy uh, version of Star Wars that was the mark of the prequels. But, you know, they fit right in. And uh, But we don't really know much about them. The, the group from Freetown who comes to help at the end, don't really know much about them. I, I guess to me, it felt like a little bit hollow. This this, this whole theme about needing a tribe and you, know, you can only get so far without a tribe, it sort of falls flat because he doesn't have connections with these people. I'm just going to connect, connect this to some other, other writing in Battlestar Galactica, the, the newer Battlestar Galactica, right? I mean, people get killed in that and you're like, holy shit. <laughs> like, right. what? Yeah. They killed her and you're really upset. You're like, what? That was a main character, right? Right. I'm not advocating killing everyone in your show, but I am advocating developing characters in your show, right? <laughs> because you are vested in them. And it's like when you find out, you know, spoiler, if you haven't seen Battles of Earth, you find out some people are Cylons, right? And you're like, what? Wait a minute. I've been riding right. along on this one for four seasons. And 
I think it gives you the ability to say like, I care about this person, you know, if they're hurt, if they die, if they don't. And and here it feels cheap. You know, it feels- It's, it's, it's like Night of the Living Dead, like someone else's brains got eaten. Or like, okay, that was the person running down the street. Right. And, and these are supposed to be his- his tribe, quote unquote. Yeah, when, when some of the mods got shot, I was like, I'm like, wait, is that someone I knew? Was that an extra mod? I don't even know. When the guards get pushed off the cliff and you're like, wait, are, are we supposed, this is, this seems really bad, but it's just sort of like part of a montage with a, like a rampaging rancor. Right, right. Of, 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 of random people you don't know dying. And it's like, wait, but that was his, this was his crew. And now I guess we feel nothing about that. It felt cheap. It felt, one, they hadn't done the work to really establish those characters or those relationships. And I mean, I think this comes back to the problem. One of the major problems with this show is it feels underwritten. They're going for this old Western spaghetti Western aesthetic where there is very little dialogue, but they have not done the visual work that would be required to build meaningful connections between characters and make us care about them, sort of an emotional connection. And so it feels like a series of of nostalgic nods at things that you might remember from other Star Wars stories. I mean, they're putting these out, I mean, at a rate. I mean, my God, there's nowadays, for the kids nowadays, you can see more Star Wars, more hours of Star Wars in the winter of 2021 than I saw in from birth to 21 years old. Right, right? yeah. The, the writing feels underwritten, but it also feels rushed. I mean, the whole production feels rushed. And I mean, my hypothesis is that it's about trying to boost subscribers to Disney+. Plus. So if you can rush this stuff out the door, you know, get six or seven episodes out, you can get, you can boost your su- subscriber numbers and that's good for the shareholders and, you know. I mean, Disney it's what all these, I mean, how many, could, could you, I'm not going to make you name them, but how many Marvel mini packages did Netflix come out with. You know, if you look at the franchisation of Star Wars on Disney, they're doing the same thing. They're like, how many of these can we make? Like, okay, we got DB8. Well, we got uh we got a Wookiee over there. Well, we got any Ewoks. Get some Ewoks in here. We can make a se- don't suggest anything, John. They're gonna start to do it. I- I'm a fan of Ewoks. I'm I'm pro Ewok. Uh that song was like one of the top <laughs> so- requested songs of that era when it came out. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to sing it. I do know a little Ewok. That's a joke. I know a little Ewok. It was accidental. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm cutting I you have off. To say, Cut your mic. <laughs> the, joke, the joke that was said, and she goes, I had a relationship with a Jawarth. Very, very furry. I've been laughing about that for two months. So I have to say appreciation to whoever wrote that. There are l- these little silly moments, you know, these sort of fun moments that don't take themselves too seriously that I appreciate. But overall, I feel like you, 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 at some point, if they're going to keep making these and there's going to be you know, a dozen more Star Wars shows on Disney+, at some point, you know, appeals to nostalgia is not going to cut it. Right. Right. At some point, you do have to like, actually bring someone in who can write dialogue and you can you know, make characters talk to each other in a way that builds uh, you know, tension and emotional connection over time because right now, it's, it feels like... John Favros and Robert Rodriguez, they got together over drinks and they they made a list of all stuff that would be super cool for fans to see, like just brainstorming. And they didn't go back and rewrite the sort of connective tissue that would make it a cohesive emotional story. And I think that to some extent, The Mandalorian sort of has this problem too, but they get away with it because they have the Baby Yoda thing, right? Which is really the reason, let's be honest, all of us are watching that show. But you can only go so far. Right, because then at some point it's not nostalgia anymore, right? It's like right. if you start wearing bell-bottom jeans as a throwback and <laughs> you start doing it for a decade, it's not nostalgia anymore. It's now, right? It, it loops back on itself and it, it, it eats itself. They have to start taking risks because right now it feels like it all feels very safe. It feels very corporate. It feels very calculated. Um, and, you know, there can be, there's things that are interesting and fun, but it, it remains sort of a glossy veneer. You know, nothing about Boba Fett and to to an extent, nothing about the Mandalorian really takes any risks or really pushes the Star Wars sort of universe forward in any meaningful way. So in my younger days, I, uh, it reminds me because I used to, um, know a lot of friends like club kids and, and a lot of DJs. 
And one time I remember after we all went to a bunch of clubs, I was sitting in uh, some kind of like breakfast place because it was like five in the morning and we're all sitting there and everyone else at the table with me is a DJ, is like a club DJ. And I remember teasing them and I was like, you know, being a DJ is a stupid job. Like, why can't you just, <laughs> why can't you just make a CD at the time uh, and give it to the club owner and they just plug it in and they play music for like five hours or 10 hours or six hours or however long the club goes for. Like, and you just play all the top songs, all the top, whatever genre the club is, you give them all the top songs, you mix it really well at home at a studio. It's mixed better than you can mix live. Like, why wouldn't you just do that? And I was a little bit playing devil's advocate here, um, as I do. And all of them started yelling at me, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. You have to read the crowd. You have to know what they want. And then my friend, a friend of mine, his name is Oshin. He's like, nah, you got to play music that people don't like. And I remember looking at him and thinking like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He's like, no, you got to play music that people are not used to, that they don't like, and that they may come to like, right? He goes, because people, that will make people go, oh, now I left here. I heard things that I didn't know before. I experienced something I didn't know before. Now I'm interested in this. I didn't know about like, you know, Afrobeat music that just got mixed into this. I didn't know about like new wave music, maybe some punk music that I had never heard before. Or maybe I didn't know about like ska or I didn't know about, you know, dance hall, you know, from like early dance hall from the 1980s. But when I went to that hip hop club, they, they were putting some of that on. I didn't know about that. Now you're interested in it. Now you have the ability to go out and find out about that. Now your life has been enriched because you know more about art, right? <laughs> and right. So, so really, I think, you know, to, to quote my DJ friends, you need to play music people don't like. I think that's a very simple way of saying it. But to me, when, when my friend said that to me, I mean, they said it to me like 20 years ago, more than that. And I was like, you know, that's some... <laughs> right there that's that's a, a thing that goes in your head and you have to think about it yeah seriously yeah i mean i i think that in the case of boba fett again they need to be willing to take risks they need to be willing to do something brave enough to make the audience feel uncomfortable on purpose in, in the same way that the last jedi i think is the best piece of star wars media since the original trilogy like since return of the jedi because it took these huge risks and it made things interesting and meaningful again, right? Making Luke a hermit who has closed himself off from the force is a bold choice. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. Right, 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 right. right. It gives us space to do something different and to, and to explore this stuff in a more nuanced, complicated way. Yeah. And, and also to be upset by something you're like, well, that's not how I would have written it. Or I don't know. I feel uncomfortable with that. I need to figure out why the hell I feel uncomfortable about it. And I need to figure out why, why it wasn't done a different way. I think that that, you know, it, it's the music you don't like. And now you're like thinking about it. Yeah. And so this is something that I'm, I'm pretty sure that what Disney wants is a formula, a template that they can just print over and over again, you know, throw in some more references for something else, copy paste, basically. Which again is, you know, and I'll beat this drum, it is the is the problem with corporate consolidation of media. I, I think one of the things that's really amazing about this is like, what is the most popular character of the entire new series of Star Wars? Well, obviously that that is Baby Yoda. Yes, Baby Yoda. And I think a lot of that is not the way they were gonna do it. Not no. the way it's yeah. it's because Werner Herzog just came in like a Werner Herzog and screamed at everybody. He wasn't even supposed to be there. They're like, Werner Herzog is awesome. We think he's a great director. And someone just brought him in as, as nostalgia for, you know, filmy people like me to be like, wow, Werner Herzog is in it. That's pretty cool. And then he started yelling at them like a madman. Yeah, because they were going to do Baby Yoda CGI. And he was yeah. like, you cowards. Yeah. And you're he's cowards. Like, <laughs> I honestly think, I honestly think that people wouldn't have interacted with Baby Yoda the same way, that, that that actors wouldn't have interacted in Baby Yoda the same, and Baby Yoda wouldn't have looked the same. It would have been a little bit of been like 20, 30% more uncanny. And that blew the hell up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, they were told like, no, by skilled, breaking the mold, doing things that people don't like, master of that, Werner Herzog. Like, Werner Herzog makes documentaries that aren't documentaries. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not going to tell you what's real. And people are like, what? You can't do that. You're not allowed. It's got to be a documentary or not a documentary. He's like, I really don't care. I have a camera. I get to do what I want. <laughs> I, I, when I first heard Werner Herzog say that in an interview, I'm like, what an asshole. I'm like, what? 
And then I remember watching a movie and I was like, wait a minute, that part isn't true? I'm like, I don't even understand what's real anymore. And now I have to think about what reality is. And thank you, Werner Herzog. He's, he's made you a better person by making you uncomfortable uh, and questioning the nature of reality itself. People should go watch all the Werner Herzog movies. Yes, but slowly. You know, it takes you a, lot. It's, you, it's you, a lot. You can't binge that. No, yeah. you got to take them one at a time. And so going back to Star Wars, the, the Book of Boba Fett does not take risks. I mean, we can call it the Disneyfication, right? I mean, right, it's what yeah. it means. It is the Disneyfication of Star Wars. And I, th I think that plays out in the world building. You know, once Boba Fett leaves the Tuscan tribe who have been massacred and goes on the rest of his quest, right? What is the rest of his quest? What is his goal? You know, first is to get revenge, which he does. He thinks he does. But then his goal is to become a local warlord, but like a local warlord with a heart of gold. Right, right. You know, he is essentially running a protection racket. He's saying, pay me <laughs> tribute and I will protect you. That's a mobster. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's like, a I also, I also like, because there's a thing essential in the protection racket is like, pay me and, and you'll be okay. Usually the unsaid second part of that sentence is pay me and I will protect you from me. Because it's right. like, that's what right. it means. That, like, you're like, I won't hurt you. Yeah, this is a real nice establishment you have here. It'd be a real shame <laughs> if something if happened, happened to, to it. it. Yeah. My yeah. guy's just standing out there with bricks right now. <laughs> But um, but th that's unsaid. It's like, well, who is going to hurt you? And like, why would they? And it's like, oh, there's this other set of people that are going to do that. And it's like, well, they're asking us for protection money too. So why should we pay you? Right. And and so in in this version, Boba Fett gets to be the hero essentially by saying, "Job of the Hut ruled with fear, but I'm going to rule through respect." Right. That's the line he says. And well, what does that mean when you really start thinking about it? in the show, in the context of the show, you think about that and you go, wait, that just means violence. Like respect for my ability to do violence to you or someone else. Because at, at every point where Boba Fett gains respect, whether it's of the, the Tuscans or the people of uh, Mos Espa or whoever, the way that he gains their respect is through acts of violence extreme violence or the threat therein. That scene where all the crime uh, syndicates are around the table and one of them is like, why shouldn't we just take your stuff and kill you right now? And then the, the rancor's claws come through the grate, right? And that is the, the threat. I have more violence, yeah. <laughs> right. The reason you can't do that is because I have a rancor and my violence will trump your violence and therefore you have to respect me, right? That's the setup here. And it's usually... Direct. It's not even proxy violence. It's not even like you know the God. The Godfather wasn't going out and murdering people. The Godfather's like kill that dude, right? <laughs> and and this his is direct violence. It's like I'm gonna go out. And you're like really? Aren't you the war? Don't you sit in the you know <laughs> the throne room? Yeah. And they refer to him. Fennec refers to him as Daimyo, and I think some of the 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 folks in Moscow. The mayor. Yeah. 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 They were yeah. like, you are now Daimyo, and this person was it before, and. You know, this is, is a Japanese term for, I mean, it translates to English to feudal lord, right? Right. That means a certain thing. It's like people in political science will say like, well, it was a time of feudalism. They don't say that like that was a good political system or right. a fair political system. In any other structure, like if you and I got in a time machine, that would be fun. And we went back somewhere <laughs> and we saw and we could see this happening. You'd be like, well, this is always done in a groveling like protection racket thing, right? It's like you go in and you say, well, you know, you have to give us, you know, 5,000 bushels of grain. And the, you know, and the serfs are like, we can't give you 5,000 bushels of grain because we only have 4,000 and we have to eat, Lord, master, right? And using, you know, a Japanese term for it is just like, you know, like you just use a term that people aren't so used to. So it doesn't sound, you know, Fennec referred to him as like, well, you know, now, Boba Fett, you are the feudal lord. Everyone would be like, huh? Yeah, that is not someone I want to sympathize with. <laughs> yeah, like that is that is not a goal I identify with here. Yeah. Now, but somehow they're able to turn it, you know, turn Boba Fett's quest here. He, he, you know, he says he's, he wants to protect the people of Mos Espa, but he's talking about that, them as his subjects. Calls himself a ruler, but he's a, a ruler with, a, again, a heart of gold. Now, politically, 
the audience should be horrified by that. But the way the show is framed, band of, of, uh, of misfits coming together to, to stop this other worse thing, a drug syndicate? I mean, is that's the, that's the I, metaphor. I, I have to be fascinated by it because in a way, I think they did this. I think it's quite clever that you're like, well, are they a company? So, you know, the leftists among us would be like, oh, they're a company. It's like a company that's doing this. Because, like, they could be a company. It's like, are, they're illegal, but they're against the empire. It, are they bad? Or are they doing something that in the world would be okay, right, if, if they weren't doing it with violence, right? Like, you're not sure about that, right? And I think it, it fits easily into a right analysis of politics and a left analysis of politics. And if you're, you know, if you think of yourself as not political, it also fits like, oh, they're just bad guys, right? And if you're a leftist, you're like, well, they're capitalists who are just like violent capitalists as they are. And if you're more rightist, you're like, oh, they're a, you know, a drug that's their MS-13. That's who they it's, are. It's the Ill- illegitimate version of capitalism. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Banditry. You have this, the Pike Syndicate who are the villains here. And that makes Boba Fett's quest to become a warlord okay, because he's fighting this thing that's worse. And within Westerns, the way that Westerns are set up is this notion of the, of the Wild West, right? This sort of totally lawless, chaotic, and violent place uh, where brute force is the only language that anyone understands and that can get anything done. Uh, now, that is not actually the way the West was at all, but that is the fictionalized uh, fantasy of it. When Book of Boba Fett essentially marries itself to that framework, it creates a situation where uh, violence is the only thing that can ultimately solve any problem, right? So communication, talking it out, negotiating diplomacy, all that stuff is not only ineffective, it is framed as completely absurd to even try. And I mean, we see that over and over again, right? We see Boba Fett tries to negotiate with the Pike Syndicate on behalf of the Tusken Raiders. Doesn't work. You know, the sheriff tries to negotiate with the Pike Syndicate who are who are doing that deal in the desert there. Mm-hmm. It all falls apart, kills them all. Or all, you know, he kills most of them. When the 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 owner of the of the gambling establishment tries to talk the Wookiee down, she has all this sort of high-minded rhetoric about how we're civilized people and so on. And he rips the guy's arms off anyway, right? It doesn't work. Every time that any character tries to engage in negotiations or any sort of communication to solve a problem, it is doomed to fail. And this is part and partial to the Western framework in in this kind of genre. This is the way. If I may offer an alternative, if you would feel confident empowering me to negotiate on your behalf, I'm fairly certain we would be granted passage off-world with, at worst, some theatrical, symbolic, groveling gestures and an exchange of funds. Yeah, I think the, the Major Domo is this fascinating character, right? Because, so he's this sort of uh, uh, liaison character, right? He, he's the, right. he might be like a chief of staff or something we would think of now. So he's the, the, the person who's the go-between all the time, the negotiator. And he's seen as this like weak, there's really other, no other way to put it. I think that the viewer gets the idea that he's like effeminate. Because he's he's mousy, and he always has this very um, uh, dilettante, elite attitude. He says, you know, where he was, he was educated. I can't remember if he says, "Well, I was educated on Corsican, Corsican, yeah, or you, yeah. or you weren't educated on Corsican." Whichever, whichever way it goes. I mean, I'm somewhat for the idea that that's a shitty thing to do to be like, "I'm better than you" because right. I went to yeah. a so-called yeah. better school. But I, I also think it's kind of based to be like, "Oh, we hate this guy, and he's a, he's weak because he wants to try to." Solve right. problems without shooting people or cutting them apart with a dark saber. Yeah, so he, you know, he is the character who always, is always trying to negotiate their way out of a situation, and that is framed, you know, in the show as manipulative and deceptive and cowardly and selfish. And I'll just say the the way he does it, though, it is though it is those things because right. it's written anytime, to be that. Anytime yeah. he can save his ass, he's like, I'm for that. That's what I'm right. for. Right. But also, you know, it gives you this idea that weakness is trying to resolve resolve problems. Right. And that not only is trying to talk through something, you know, weak and squirrely, but, you know, in that, 
it is in, in especially in Westerns, it is feminized. Yeah. Right. It is, you know, real men decide things through the use of force and women, the women folk, they go and they, they gab about stuff. Right. So this idea that, that you could maybe work out a diplomatic solution in the context of this show is considered ludicrous. And, and like you're saying, you know, this character is written to be ridiculous, but that's a construct too. And what, what, is, what does that do, right? It makes the use of violence, the use of brute force, it makes it the honest, honorable, brave thing to do. And anything else would be you know, un- unthinkable. And one thing, I, I mean, I just was thinking when you were saying that, there is a really interesting comparing the Major Domo's character to Fennec Shan's character is really interesting. She is a extremely skilled, you know, highly trained assassin. And you you feel like, you know, uh, of two ways about this. You're like, oh, that's kind of cool that they have a really powerful woman character, but also she's just a murderer. (laughs) She just, her skill is that she kills people, right? And and it's a massive And and brutally. Yeah. She she kills them brutally. I mean, that scene where she like hangs the mayor. Yeah. It's, it's pretty brutal. I mean, I was- not expecting that, you know, and but we're supposed to be on her side about that, right? Because right. those guys all right. deserved it. And so we're like, oh, cool. But I mean, th- this is the thing it's, about- It's kind of like a Hillary Clinton breaking the glass ceiling. It's like, I too can use, you know, <laughs> predator drones to kill people in Wazuristan. You're like, uh, wait, was that what we wanted? I'm not sure that's what we wanted. I mean, it really, I think, shows that gender roles uh, are defined by- something being sort of masculinized in our culture versus feminized in our culture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's done by a woman or done by a man, right? I mean, these are, this is uh this is gender coding right. that can be put onto pretty much anything. No, it's, it's, it's going back to where we started a little bit, having a person of indigenous ancestry play a person who's essentially a colonizer and interacting with indigenous people, you're like, oh, well, how am I supposed to feel about that? And the same thing, Fennec Shah has that. How am I supposed to feel about this woman, you know, taking on this very masculine, ultra-violence role for a warlord? You're like, is that good or is that bad? It's it's clearly an advance of what would have happened in 1978. Oh, yeah. No, we, we've, we've come a long right. way, but you also haven't come very gown. far. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm tempted to talk about Luke Skywalker here, uh, his CGI, the zombie Luke that we get in this in this series. But I don't think we have time to get into it. I think that, that would be, that's a whole other podcast we're going to have to do down the line. Yeah, I, I think um, we should Uncanny Valley sometime later. We're going to have to leave it there. Please remember that all pop culture detective projects are 100% funded by listeners and viewers like you. There are no ads and no sponsorships. So if you like the kind of in-depth media analysis you just heard, please consider going over to Patreon to support our work. Just go to patreon.com slash popdetective. As always, you can keep up to date with all of our projects on Twitter at popdetective and find our long-form video essays on the Pop Detective YouTube channel, where we have a brand new video essay called The Ethics of Looking that deconstructs the pervasive harmless peeping Tom trope in Hollywood media. We'll be back again very soon with another audiophile investigation. So until then, please remember to follow and subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.